0: If you can uh, find your Bible or the Bible in front of you, the Pew Bible, uh, on page 799, you'll find our sermon text today, which is Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. Mark 14, verses 32 to 42. You can see this morning we have the Lord's table here in front of us, which we're going to celebrate in just a bit. Last week, we we spent the whole sermon talking about communion and what it means and why we observe it and how we observe it, Uh, and today we're going to prepare for that by looking at what Jesus did right after the first Lord's Supper, the last supper that he had with his disciples. He went out into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he struggled over a cup. He struggled with his father over a cup. Let's hear that as we read together, and then we'll talk about it for a few minutes. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation." Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. I want you to think uh, this morning about all the different things that a cup can represent. Cups are very elastic symbols, they can represent many different things. Imagine riding down the road and you see a restaurant sign, and on the sign there is a wine glass or a beer mug, or a martini glass. What does that represent? Uh, Well, there's a bar in the restaurant, and this is a restaurant that serves drinks, and you can come in here and you can celebrate, right? You can enjoy a meal in joy with with your friends and with your family members. That's what It represents a relatively good thing. Uh, Or you can be riding down the road and see a pharmacy. And on the outside of the pharmacy, sometimes there's a cup. It looks almost like a wine glass sometimes with a snake wrapped around it, and that represents medicine, that in that building there are cups with medicinal materials in them that you can actually, uh, can actually make you well. Sometimes there's a the little bowl-like cup called a mortar and a pestle on it, you know, on a, uh, on a uh, pharmacy, and that also represents medicine within a cup. Uh, or you might be going through your cabinet under your sink, and you'll find a, a bottle, and on it there is a cup pictured on the back with a skull and crossbones on it. What does that cup represent? Poison. Poison. Death. Don't drink it. And so you kind of see there, even in our culture, a cup can represent many different things. It, re- it can represent celebration and joy, it can represent medicine and healing, and it can also represent death. Well, the same thing is true in the Bible. The cup of the Lord is mentioned from Genesis all the way to Revelation over and over again. Sometimes that cup represents joy, like at the Lord's Supper, at the communion, Jesus gives his disciples a cup of his blood, which they are to drink, and it is a cup of blessing and a cup of peace and a cup of celebration. And yet other times, like in Jeremiah 25, which we read earlier, and like here in Mark 14, Jesus wrestling over this cup, it's a cup not of blessing, but a cup of curse, a cup of judgment. In fact, here's the point this morning. In order to give us the cup of blessing through his death, Jesus had to drink the cup of curse. In order to hand to you peace and joy and reconciliation with God, he first had to taste the bitter poison of the wrath of God. And so before we come to communion to taste that sweet cup, Let's consider this morning in three ways the cup of Jesus' bitterness. Uh, Look at your bulletin and you'll find those three ways. First of all, let's ask, what cup is Jesus anticipating here? Why is he saying, Father, remove this cup from me? What cup is it? Secondly, why did Jesus have to drink the cup? Why did he need to? Uh, He asked for it to be removed, but it couldn't be removed. And then lastly, we're going to look at how Jesus finally did drink the cup for us. All right, and then we'll come to the table. So first of all, let's look together at what cup Jesus is anticipating. If you'll look at your uh, Bible again there in verses 32 to 34, you'll see it. Jesus is in complete distress in the Garden of Gethsemane. This garden was a garden just outside the city walls of Jerusalem on the slope of the Mount of Olives. It's still there today. It had olive trees in it, possibly other plants. It was dark. It was nighttime. This was a place Jesus often went with his disciples, which is why Judas knew to go there to betray Jesus. They they went there all the time. It was one of their meeting places. And yet this time, I want you to notice two things. First of all, Jesus leaves the disciples behind. In fact, he does it in two stages. He says in verse 32 to all the disciples, the 12, sit here while I pray. And then he takes only Peter, James, and John with him a little further into the garden, into that next level of trees. And then he leaves even them behind and goes farther, it says, to fall on his face to pray. And so you've got to ask yourself, what would cause the friend of sinners, right, the one who never leaves his boys behind, Even when they're completely undeserving, he's always, in every other story, he's bringing them with him. And yet here he says, wait there while I go and pray, while I go and wrestle. What would cause the friend of sinners to leave his disciples behind? And then it says, when he gets there, he fell on the ground and he prayed. He fell on the ground because he had distress. It says it's great distress and great trouble. He describes it as a sorrow unto death. That's deep sorrow. And so you've got to ask yourself, what would cause the Son of God, who doesn't normally feel this kind of sorrow, what would cause him to be so sorrowful that he would actually prefer to die than to continue to feel it? One of the other gospels says that Jesus was sweating as he prayed. And the sweat that he sweated was so thick that it was almost like blood was coming out of his pores. Wow. What an intense scene, right? What's going on here? What cup is this that Jesus is begging the Father? Father, if if there's any way for this cup to pass, if there's any way for this hour not to take place, please let it not. Let it not take place. Let me not have to drink that cup. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the cup that Jeremiah announced in Jeremiah 25. Jonathan Edwards uh, read this passage and he commented on it. This is Jesus looking over the edge of the abyss down into the fires of God's wrath. He's looking down into the pit of hell and he's, he's seeing the flames glowing and coming up, knowing that in just moments time, he's gonna be pushed over the edge into that fire where he is going to be punished and tortured in the place of his people. The cup that Jesus is going to go drink is a cup of God's wrath. Jeremiah described it as, There is a cup that every nation must one day drink, and it's a cup of the judgment of God. People will get drunk by this cup, but it will not be a a drunkenness that brings joy or party. It will be a drunkenness that brings endless staggering. People will fall down, it says, and they will not rise because they will finally, once and for all, taste what, what their sins against God have deserved. Now think about this. This is so important. I realize we don't like to talk about wrath, do we? We don't like to talk about judgment. Someone might say, "My God is a God of love. My God is a God of goodness. He's a good God." And I want to tell you, so is my God. And so is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, he's the only God. There there are no real competitors. He is loving and he is good. But listen to this. The Bible says this. Because he is loving. Because he is good. He has a cup of wrath. To give to sinners to drink. You say well how do those two things go together? Think about it. Parents. In the room today. Grandparents. Would you be a good and loving parent? if your children were being attacked by someone and you didn't intervene by all means necessary to defend them? Hmm? Would you? Would you be a good and loving spouse if your spouse was being harmed and you did not by all means necessary stand in the way of the harm? Isn't it true that love... And goodness actually necessitates judgment. Isn't that right? Those two things are not at odds. Jesus knew that. In fact, I'll say this. Jesus knew God better than you know God. Jesus is the darling of his heavenly Father. He was with the Father from eternity. He is one with the Father. He knows God. And he understood, as he was about to face the cross, he understood what he was going to have to go into, because he knew the kind of love God has. He knew the kind of goodness God has, and that, that love and goodness will not suffer his commandments to be, uh, to be violated with impunity. He will not suffer sinners who harm his people to go unpunished. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. And so Jesus, anticipating the cross, knew that he was going to have to drink it to the very bottom. That cup that Jeremiah announced, Jesus was going to drink it and stagger and be drunk with it. So that his people would not have to drink it. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, staring into the abyss of God's judgment, on our sin sin deserves wrath the loving and the holy and the and and the good God must punish sin and must punish sinners and yet God's wrath is something that is simply unbearable for a human to take if Jesus sweated drops of blood if Jesus fell on his face and if Jesus begged that some other way be found if possible then imagine how ill-equipped I am and you are to drink that cup. In fact, the Bible says that if, if you are to drink that cup and if I'm to drink it, we'll be drinking it forever in hell. No end to it. Because sins against an infinite God are worthy of nothing less than an infinite punishment. Do you feel the heaviness of that? Do you feel the heaviness of it? I know most of us know the heaviness of it because there's been a time in your life where your conscience has bothered you. Have you ever had a time like that where your conscience was hurt? It was, it was pricked, we might say, or it was, it was disturbed? I'll tell you, there is, no, there is no worse feeling than that, than feeling guilty, than feeling like you've done something wrong and you can't, wash it away. You can't take it back. I mean, isn't that, that that regret, that bitterness? Well, the Bible says when we feel that, that's God's gift. He's actually giving us one little drop of what hell will be ahead of time so that we will wake up and wise up and turn and ask for mercy. Now, but th- think about it a different way. Think about that one drop that you experienced. Behind that drop was a whole cup And that Jesus, as he stood hours away from the cross, willingly looked at that cup and said, yes, I'm going to drink that. Every drop of it. Not just one drop, not just one reminder, but the whole thing. On behalf of my people. The cup that Jesus anticipates is a cup of wrath and it shakes him to his human core. But secondly, I want you to see that Jesus had to drink the cup. Look at verses 34 to 41. The prayer of Jesus, which he fell on his face to pray, uh, the, pr- the prayer that he prayed three different times in the garden that night, the cause of all the sweat, the cause of all the tears, was a simple request. If it's possible, Father, verse 35, let the hour pass. Verse 36, Abba, Father, what a, what a term of endearment, Abba, Father. All things are possible with you. If you can remove this cup from me, remove it by all means. If there's some other way, Father. Jesus is saying, if I can save these people without having to taste that cup and drink it down to the bottom, then by all means, show me that way. Because as a human being, I would rather not ingest the fiery wrath of God against human sin. And yet, the answer of the Father comes back not in words, but in an illustrated occurrence that is repeated three times. Now, in the Bible, when something happens three times in a row, or when something is said three times in a row, it means like it's certain. It's sure, like holy, holy, holy. God is absolutely holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And here, three times, Jesus prays, Father, let the cup pass, and three times, he comes back to check in with his disciples, and what does he find, even in the best of them? Even in Peter, James, and John, what does he find? They're sleeping, each time. Look there at verse 37, he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Simon, Simon, why are you sleeping? Could you not even pray one hour? Watch and pray, lest you fall into temptation. This, Peter, is the hour of temptation. I've already told you you're going to deny me three times. You ought to be up and praying. And yet it says, Jesus came back again. Verse 40, and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. Have you ever had heavy eyes? Whew! It's hard to fight off, isn't it? Very hard to fight off. And yet, I think all of us would agree... Even if you had heavy eyes and you learned your house was on fire. It wouldn't be so hard to shake off the heavy eyes, would it? You would come alert and come alive pretty quick if you realized, well, I'm in a burning house. And Jesus is saying, you are in a burning house. Why? I know what I'm, I'm facing. I know the abyss over which I am looking and I'm awake. I'm praying. Why aren't you? And yet the third time, Jesus comes back, verse 41. And he said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? You see, when Jesus said to God, God, if there is a way for me to save these people without drinking the cup of your wrath, show me by all means, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. God did not come with an audible voice to say, Son, it's not possible, drink the cup. And yet what he did is he he caused three times the same thing to happen that clearly communicates Jesus has to drink the cup. Each time he finds his disciples, the best of men, failing in weakness, failing in sin to face what he's about to face. In other words, he finds them unable to drink the cup. And so therefore he has nothing to do but to conclude, I must drink it for them. They're not even awake. They can't even pray an hour. There's no way they're going to be able to take the wrath of God and come out on the other side. And so I can't skip around this cup. I can't skip the cross and go straight to glory. I can't bring them into glory without going through the cross. I must go there for them. They are weak. I am strong. I can do it. I will do it. I'll do it for them. In the ancient world, uh, sometimes when two armies would line up for battle, they would do various things to try to uh, prevent war, just like we do today. I mean, because, you know only. All sane people want to avoid war if possible, right? Because war is terrible. So everybody would love to avoid it if it's possible to avoid it. Back then, they had one common strategy. Each side would pick one person, their strongest warrior. They were called the champion of their side. And they would send them out to the battlefield. And instead of all the army fighting all the army, the one champion would fight the other to the death. So that only one person would die instead of all those people. And, and the winner would win for the whole nation, and the loser would lose for the whole nation. I mean, think about, for example, the story of David and Goliath. It's one such example, where Goliath was the champion of the Philistines, and oh, did they pick a good one, right? I mean, this joker was tall <laughs> and strong. Nobody wanted to fight Goliath. There was no champion to be found in Israel until who came up? Kids? David, right? Little David, young man at this point. You could call him a boy, a youth. Do you remember what David said? The battle is the Lord's. I'll face him. Somebody has to be the champion for God's people. We can't just let Goliath run over God's people and blaspheme God. Someone must stand in the gap. The battle belongs to the Lord. The Lord is the defender of his people. And so I will be that man. I'll be that servant. And don't you see it? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is our greater David. The Goliath that we face is sin. The Goliath we face is a cup full of the wrath of God. The Goliath we face is death and hell forever. None of us can face that Goliath. That Goliath taunts us and we fall asleep. It's all we can do. And yet Jesus comes forth and says, like David before him, the battle belongs to the Lord. I will go, and I will die for this people. Now think about this. As a Christian, you are called by Jesus to obey him, to live for him, to serve him, sometimes even to suffer for him. Here's the temptation. Once you have obeyed him, once you have served him, once you have suffered for him, once you have loved and served your neighbors, you start to think, man, what a good person I am. How great I am. Sometimes we come to the Lord's table, chests out. I'm so glad I'm a Christian. Thank you, God, I'm not like other people. The Garden of Gethsemane is a reminder, no matter how much obedience, no matter how much service, no matter how much love, and even how much sacrifice we expend, it's but a response to the grace of God. It never, ever takes away our need for a champion. We cannot drink the cup of God's wrath unless we drink it in hell forever. We always need Jesus to drink that cup for us. When we come to this table, we come not as those who deserve to be here. We come as those who depend completely on the work of our champion like David before us. Fighting our Goliath. Winning the battle. Taking the damnation that we deserve. So that we could now drink a cup of sweet, sweet blessing. This morning, do you hear what I'm telling you? I'm telling you there is a benefit of feeling weak. Let me say it again. There is a benefit to feeling weak. You're not excited enough about that. People who feel weak ought to get excited about that, right? Because we feel weak a lot, don't we? And sometimes we try to play it off and act tough and act like we're stronger than we really are. And we, what we, one of my friends calls, we lie the difference, right? We, we know that the standard is here and we're here. And so we lie to make up for it. And we pretend like we're better than we are. And we need to cut that charade. To be weak is to know we need a champion. To be weak is to know we need him to give us his cup because he took ours. And that no matter how far along the road in Christ we get, no matter if we become the most saintly person besides Jesus that's ever walked the earth, at the end of the day, we still need him to drink this cup. We're like the disciples, every one of us, sleeping under the tree while he does the hard business. Be careful. Don't be tempted to forget that you need a Savior Don't throw pity parties for yourself because you're just such a servant. Don't have a martyr complex. Remember, he served you. And he serves you. Amen? Now let's look at the last thing. How did Jesus eventually drink the cup? And I want you to just focus simply on verse 42. After Jesus saw the cup, he was every part of his human life was stretched to its limits when he saw it because it was awful what he was going to have to go through he begged the lord if possible let it pass but he got it loud and clear from god it's not possible you must drink it and so in the end he decided to drink it and in verse 42 he shows us how he did rise let us be going My betrayer is at hand. You have two sentences there divided by a semicolon. A semicolon, of course, is uh, different than a period. A semicolon connects two sentences that are supposed to be closely related. They're supposed to go together in terms of their tone and in terms of their subject. Isn't that right? Y'all remember, you know, eighth grade English? Maybe even before that? But look at those two sentences for me. Because it seems like those two sentences come from two separate scripts to two completely different movies connected together. Rise, let us be going. What does that sound like? Rise. Let us be going. This sounds like rise. It's 5 o'clock on Friday. Let's go. Rise. It's time for vacation. Let's pack it up and go. This sounds like eagerness. It sounds like willingness. It sounds like readiness. That's one movie. And then look at the second half of the semicolon. My betrayer is at hand. Wow, that's a different movie, y'all. Or is it? What you see here is something about the heart of Jesus Christ as he faced the cross. This teaches us that though Jesus struggled with the cup he had to drink as a human, when his father communicated to him loud and clear, no, you must do it to love these people, he took it willingly. He took it lovingly. You might even say he took it cheerfully and I'm not just making that up because the Bible says in Hebrews for the joy set before him he endured the cross. For the joy he endured the cross. Jesus wanted to drink the cup for you and he wanted to drink the cup for me. Willingness makes his act all the more sweet, doesn't it? It makes his act all the greater. Just like you're I mean, imagine if your spouse came to you with a gift or with a a bouquet of flowers and said, here you go, it's what I was obligated to do. (laughs) It's February 14th, and they tell me I'm supposed to do it, so here it is, I did it. That'd be weird. It would not make the flowers smell sweeter. It's a lot different, isn't it, than a genuine gift? A genuine act of love where they would say, Hey, honey, look what I got. This is just a small symbol of how much I love you and how much I appreciate you. Here you go. That's different. Which one was the cross? Sometimes we get it twisted. Sometimes we think that either the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit or maybe all three persons of the Trinity underwent the cross like it was a duty or an obligation that they had to perform but didn't really want to. Sometimes we think the Father is mean and hates us but the Son came and twisted the Father's arm so that he would love us and all that kind of stuff. That's not the way the Bible presents it. Sometimes we think the father sent his son to do something he didn't want to do, almost like what one writer called cosmic child abuse. The father sending the son into a a destruction that he didn't want. None of that is true. The father sent the son willingly because he loved you. The son willingly went because he loved you. The Holy Spirit enabled Jesus to endure because he loved you. You are loved by the triune God. That's what the cross communicates. Nothing but love. My betrayer is at hand. My cup is ready. It is now in my hands. Let us be going because I can't wait to get there. Because I love these people. They are dear to me. Each and every one of them. C.S. Lewis has this insight in one of his novels. He says when Jesus died in the wounded world he didn't just die for men in general but he died for each man in particular I think C.S. Lewis was right there maybe more right than he even knew we believe in this doctrine called particular redemption sometimes we call it limited atonement and what we mean by it is that Jesus Christ didn't die just as a A shot in the dark. Hey, let me die and see who comes. See who comes around. No, Jesus died with specific names on his heart. Your name. When Jesus struggled in the Garden of Gethsemane, your name was on his mind. When he suffered on the cross, our names were emblazoned, On his heart. When he was placed in the cold, dark tomb, he did it for our names. Each believer who will come to him, their names were written on his heart and still are as he stands before the throne of God. C.S. Lewis concludes If you had been the only man or woman in the world, he still would have died nonetheless. That's how personal it is, folks. The cross is not just God shooting up hoping to hit something. It's a rifle shot aimed at the bullseye of your soul. And so in a moment when we come to the table and Jesus Christ offers to us once again his body and his blood, know it, know it. Think about it as if he's saying your name along with it. Take, eat. This is my body for you. You in particular. For the joy set before me, I endured the cup of God's wrath so that you could drink the sweet cup of fellowship, the cup of peace, the cup of reconciliation, the cup of celebration forever. Know my love for you. Y'all, sometimes we think God loves us because he has to, but he doesn't like us. Do you ever fall into that trap? God tolerates us, we think. No. God loves you. Loves you. As sincerely as anyone has ever loved anyone. As deeply as anyone ever loved anyone, God loves you. And were, for some reason, he had to do it, were he he to have to do it all over again, he would do it all over again. But praise God, he doesn't have to, because he did it the first time right. He drank the cup, every drop. For a believer in Jesus, there is not one drop of the wrath of God left to drink. You will never have to drink it. You will never see the fires of hell. Now, if that doesn't make someone in here who doesn't know Jesus want to come to Jesus, I'm not the preacher for you. I can't help you. Because that right there is a beautiful picture, isn't it? Of a God with arms open wide. With more love than our hearts could possibly contain and with more sweetness than we can even begin to imagine. Amen.